Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of violence, terrorist attacks, murder, and child murder that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Most of us know the frustrations of modern society all too well. The feeling of powerlessness when waiting an hour in traffic to go somewhere we don't really want to be in the first place. The weight of intense responsibility for our families and our futures, pressed on us from the time we're teenagers. And the pain of feeling totally disconnected from those around us, even our closest neighbors. We turn to all kinds of things to fill that emptiness inside. But sometimes nothing seems to help. On the worst days, it might all feel endless and devoid of purpose. In those moments, often all we want to hear is that someone else understands us. It's comforting to know that there are others out there who feel the same way. And it can be all too tempting when someone steps up to offer you an alternative. It might even feel as though they were sent from heaven just to save you. But everything comes at a price. And when a group of fanatics tells you exactly what you want to hear, you can be sure that fulfillment you crave won't be cheap. One day, it might even cost your life. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Yoga Cults, Gurus and Guides, a three-part podcast Thanksgiving special presented by Cults. In our third and final episode, we're covering the Japanese cult Om Shinrikyo. Led by Shoko Asahara, the group combined elements of Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and yoga to preach a violent apocalyptic dogma. In 1995, Asahara's devotees carried out a deadly gas attack in the Tokyo subways, killing 13 and injuring more than 5,000 people. Today, we'll explore Asahara's crooked path from yoga teacher to terrorist. We'll delve into the group's strange and disturbing teachings that turned everyday people into mass murderers. We've all that coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. 
Shoko Asahara came into a dark world. He was born with the name Chizuo Matsumoto in 1955 in Kumamoto, Japan, where he lived with six other siblings. One of his brothers was almost completely blind, and Asahara himself suffered from vision problems from a young age. As a result, the two brothers were enrolled in a school for the blind. Turned a government subsidy and free meals for their children, the struggling family sent along a third brother as well, even though he didn't have vision issues at all. Asahara quickly carved out a niche for himself at school. While he couldn't see well, his vision was better than many of his classmates. He took advantage of this to distinguish himself from his fellow students. He often organized trips off the school grounds for lunches and dinner, and in exchange for his supervision, his friends bought his meals. He must have loved these early tastes of power and leadership. He felt comfortable guiding his peers, and because he'd grown up poor, he knew the value of money early on. Perhaps he even knew it too well. Asahara's biographer, Shoko Igawa, later described him as totally fixated on acquiring cash and influence in his youth. This drive didn't make him popular, however. Though Asahara tried several times to run for student body president, he was never elected. Still, those disappointments didn't stop him from dreaming big. He studied to become a doctor, earned a black belt in judo, and somehow saved up a staggering $30,000 on his own before leaving high school. Ultimately, though, he failed to get into medical school and then gave up on higher education. Soon after graduating, he moved to Tokyo and found another way to dole out health advice by studying acupuncture. While the position wasn't quite the same as a medical doctor, it was still respected. In Japan, many see Western and Eastern medicines as two sides of the same coin, each compensating for the limits of the other. That dynamic seemed to suit Asahara. Perhaps he liked telling others what to do, and there was money involved. He also gravitated to those who gave him the respect he felt he deserved. Whether that was a quirk of his personality or a deliberate strategy is difficult to say. It may have been a bit of both. In the early 1980s, he opened a shop that sold Chinese medicine. However, it later became clear that this was his first real scam. Asahara was offering customers phony tinctures and salves. We can imagine what Asahara's life was like at his Chinese medicine shop. Something about him enabled him to sell these useless medicines by the truckload. He was a master of the good-natured, all-knowing smile. He came off as a friendly, caring man who was wise beyond his years. He didn't bother with hard sells, instead saying as little as possible to capture his customers' imaginations. And it worked. By 1982, the 27-year-old reportedly made hundreds of thousands of dollars hawking his fake cure-alls. But the success also made him a target. That year, the police investigated Asahara's shop and arrested him for fraud. He was forced to close his store and fined for selling fake drugs. Around this time, Asahara became passionate about yoga, and he became good at it. He also became involved in a new religious group called Aganshu, which combined Hindu and Buddhist beliefs. Perhaps inspired by this, Asahara founded his own spiritual group and yoga school in 1984. He called it Om. It seems he treated the school as a business from day one, selling special health drinks along with his yoga courses. In order to bolster his reputation as a guru and draw more students, 
Asahara knew he would have to exude authority. It wasn't enough to be an everyday guy who was good at yoga. So, like some of the other leaders we have covered in this special, Asahara traveled to India and Nepal to study from yogic leaders. It's not clear how interested he really was in learning advanced yoga techniques, but he was definitely out to associate himself with as many gurus as possible. He'd make sure to take photos with any Tibetan leaders he could get to stand still, including the Dalai Lama himself. Like Michael Roach, Asahara used these connections as marketing tools, plastering them all over his yoga studio. Now he wasn't just a self-taught yogi, he was a student of the greats. With their reputations hoisting him upward, his business began to grow. As always, though, Asahara remained unsatisfied. He didn't just want to be a yoga teacher, no matter how successful he was. He wanted to be the ultimate authority, someone utterly unquestionable. So in 1987, at 32 years of age, Asahara transformed Om into his very own religious sect, which he called Om Shinrikyo, loosely translated as Om Supreme Truth. The group's doctrine would eventually grow to become a mishmash of principles cribbed from major religions all around the world. But in the beginning, it primarily emphasized Tibetan Buddhist tenets and breath control through yoga. Though he only recruited 10 members at first, Asahara's sect worked hard to grow their numbers. They plastered Tokyo with pamphlets packed with outrageous claims. They even included pictures that appeared to show Asahara levitating off the ground seemingly in the midst of a difficult meditation. The absurdity didn't stop there. Some followers claimed they had gained powers of telepathy thanks to Asahara's teachings and techniques. It was ridiculous, but it drew eyes and ears to Aum. For many young people frustrated with the woes of the working world, Asahara offered something enticing. Key to his message was the idea that the outside world was irredeemably corrupt. He disavowed Japan's society as a whole, calling it materialistic, consumerist, and dangerous. Asahara implied that simply existing in the modern world was enough to scar one's soul. According to him, anyone who didn't choose to isolate themselves from such a society and perform specific spiritual practices accrued more bad karma every day. Considering Asahara's past of defrauding patients with phony medicine, he didn't seem to turn these ethical standards towards himself. In any case, the goal for Asahara's followers was to purge the bad karma by adhering to Asahara's teachings and following his yoga techniques. He claimed only by shedding bad karma could one avoid hellish suffering or an unfavorable reincarnation after death. Asahara was far from the only religious leader to try and isolate his followers from the outside world, but his tactics were highly effective. To prove their commitment, Asahara insisted devotees renounce all their worldly ties. That meant they had to give up their jobs, their friends, their family, and of course, everything they owned to join Om. And there was no going back for those who had second thoughts. Followers usually paid Asahara everything they had and made a permanent move to his rural compound near Mount Fuji. There, they spent days practicing extreme yoga techniques, meditating, and studying Om's dogma. They claimed to experience otherworldly visions, though this may have been due to the deprivation of food, sleep, and oxygen, and the group's reported experimentation with LSD. 
followers had very little access to information about the outside world and essentially only spoke to other followers of Asahara, creating a dangerous feedback loop that allowed no room for dissent. Asahara reinforced this dynamic by striving to create a deep camaraderie among his acolytes, insisting they all shared a unique spiritual connection, even saying that they knew each other in past lives. As Asahara's following grew into the hundreds, members were encouraged to confide and rely completely on each other. The bond was thicker than blood. As one former member put it, the bond between Ohm members was very strong. We believe we are connected in our past lives as well as the future through reincarnation. I didn't have a good relationship with my father at the time. I was taught that anything he said was evil nonsense. Asahara ratcheted up his outrageous claims as he recruited more members. Sometime in the mid-80s, he took advantage of the international fascination with Nostradamus' famous prediction that the world would end in 1999. That meant that according to Asahara, the unenlightened were destined to suffer through a bloody holy war. Only the followers of Ohm could be guaranteed to make it through and ascend to a higher plane. But Asahara didn't just stick to classic doomsday scenarios and a phony veneer of Tibetan mysticism to gain control over his followers. He threw science fiction in the melting pot, too. At one point, he claimed Kyoto University had studied his DNA and found unspecified, hidden information. This, he said, was proof that he operated on a higher plane of existence and could enter the minds of his followers. To facilitate that process, he had students perform a ritual where they drank vials of his blood and cups of his bathwater. He also created a strange piece of headgear studded with random electrodes. The apparatus, called the Perfect Salvation System, was powered by a battery pack worn on the chest. It supposedly allowed Asahara to sync his brainwaves up with his devotees. At this point, Asahara must have felt untouchable. While he'd initially posed as an enlightened yoga master, now he started calling himself the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and the Buddha. Whether or not he truly believed this about himself, he certainly believed he could do anything he wanted. And so, with his eyes ever on the horizon, the 35-year-old tried to make another leap forward. In summer of 1989, he and 24 other OM members decided to run for seats on Japan's parliament, called the Diet. To the rest of the country, it was a bizarre move and probably appeared to be just a publicity stunt. But to Asahara, it was part of a plan to install his followers in power and then eventually claim the prime ministership. The group supported his campaign by putting on public demonstrations of worship. They sang songs of praise to Asahara, danced in his honor, and attempted to recruit more members. To most of the Japanese public, the pageantry was nothing more than a laughingstock. But others recognized Asahara's cult of personality as a potential danger. The parents of Asahara's followers were particularly disturbed. Some of them went as far as to hire a lawyer to publicly dispute his wild claims. In fall of 1989, attorney Tsutsumi Sakamoto started by contacting Kyoto University to dispute Asahara's story about his special DNA. The school responded by confirming that no such research existed. For the most part, his existing followers were probably none the wiser. 
since outside information was so strictly controlled. But 33-year-old Asahara was left publicly embarrassed and boiling with rage. The parents pushed authorities to get further involved, but were mostly ignored. According to a professor of religious studies, Ian Reeder, who was interviewed in a documentary by CNA Insider, the government was afraid to go after religious groups at the time. After its defeat in World War II, Japan had enacted a new constitution which guaranteed freedom of religion. The government didn't want to ruffle any feathers by targeting Ohm, so law enforcement left him alone. It was a fatal mistake. Coming up, Asahara takes revenge on those who dare question his doctrine. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the late 1980s, Shoko Asahara's cult Om Shinrikyo was gaining steam in Japan. What started as a small community of yoga and meditation practitioners had evolved into a bizarre religious sect loyal only to their leader. Followers believed that by isolating themselves from modern society and revering Asahara, they could rid themselves of bad karma and escape hell. But joining Om Shinrikyo involved more than simply cutting ties with their relatives. It meant complete and total obedience. According to professor of social psychology Kimiaki Nishida, who was interviewed in a CNA Insider documentary, members were taught that independent thought was akin to a sin. As a result, they followed orders without question. Followers may have also believed that they were doing what they truly wanted to do, because their wills had become totally aligned with Asahara's. As time went on, it became easier for Asahara to twist and mold his devotees however he pleased. Which came in handy in late 1989, as Asahara found himself waist-deep in hot water. As the lawyer Tsutsumi Sakamoto was investigating Ohm on behalf of a group of estranged parents, he began speaking out against Ohm to the media. The breaking point came in October when Sakamoto agreed to do an interview with the Tokyo Broadcasting System television show. 
he sat down for a long-form talk with a reporter and described his efforts to take down Ohm in detail. The thing is, the interview wasn't meant to be aired in its entirety, yet somehow Ohm persuaded the Tokyo Broadcasting System to show them a sneak peek of the footage. When Asahara saw and heard Sakamoto's criticisms of his group, he was furious. He decided to have his men show Sakamoto the consequences of defying him. On November 4, 1989, Asahara sent four of his most trusted devotees to Sakamoto's apartment in the dead of night. Their original plan was to kill Sakamoto quickly and discreetly using a potassium chloride injection. But something went wrong. Finding Sakamoto sleeping beside his wife and one-year-old son, the men abducted them and injected all of them with the poison. Then, according to the prosecution, years later, the men strangled the couple and suffocated the infant. When the gruesome deed was done, the Ohm members mutilated the victims' bodies and buried them in scattered rural locations. Sakamoto and his family were reported missing the following day, but it took six years for their bodies to be found. Because there was little physical evidence left behind, the authorities hit a dead end fast. As a result, Asahara's followers got away with murder, for the time being, and the lawsuit was left dead in the water. Unfortunately for Asahara, when the parliamentary election rolled around in February of 1990, the Ohm candidates faced utter defeat. In a weird way, though, the failed campaign actually protected Asahara from serious investigation. Ridiculous stunts like these were all that the average person knew about Ohm Shinrikyo. There were few people willing to waste their time by looking into what appeared to be a delusional but harmless preacher. But to the indoctrinated members of Om Shinrikyo, the electoral defeat was unacceptable. They had been roundly rejected by the country. To them, it only proved Asahara had been right all along about the willful ignorance of society. Asahara had tried to provide guidance to the Japanese people to show them the error of their ways yet they had reacted with scorn and dismissal. There could be no saving these people. They didn't want salvation. So the group turned in a darker direction. The already escalating activities of the cult were put into overdrive after the 1990 election. By this point, Asahara had acquired enough parcels of land in the Japanese countryside to house thousands. What started as a small retreat slowly turned into a massive, isolated compound near Mount Fuji. Instead of focusing on saving the world before the apocalypse, Asahara and his followers shifted to trying to only save themselves. Asahara didn't imagine the apocalypse as a purely metaphysical spiritual struggle. He envisioned it as a brutal modern-day holy war, and if all wanted to survive, they would have to prepare for battle. At some point in this period, Asahara also began to teach a disturbing new doctrine called Poa. It stated that if a person had such bad karma that they would be condemned to hell, their only hope of salvation was to be killed. It was therefore spiritually honorable to commit murder. As Ohm prepared for the end times, Asahara was interested in assembling an arsenal of weapons. But with Japan's strict anti-gun laws, that would be easier said than done. 
Instead, Ohm decided to pour many of its resources into creating chemical and biological weapons. And his group was capable of this kind of work. In Ohm's ranks were a number of doctors, chemists, engineers, physicists, and other highly educated professionals. They spent the early 1990s developing biological and chemical weapons. By 1994, the group was most successful at producing the nerve agent Sarin, a colorless, odorless, tasteless liquid that can evaporate and spread through the air. In vapor form, it only takes a few seconds for Sarin to take effect. Depending on how long an individual is exposed, they could experience symptoms ranging from blurred vision to respiratory failure and death. And Ohm quickly found targets to test their new weapons on. A man who had sold land to Ohm wanted it back because he hadn't realized he was selling it to a cult. The former landowner took his case to court, and the judges were expected to side with him. Asahar designated the judges on the case as his mortal enemies. No perceived slight could go unpunished. Once again, he gathered only his closest followers for the task. As far as the general members of Ohm were concerned, the group was still primarily about meditation and spiritual exploration. Asahara only told those he could totally trust about his more violent plans. On the night of June 27, 1994, his most loyal devotees climbed into a modified refrigeration truck, specially made to disperse the toxin into the open air. Once they were parked near where the judges lived, the men released the sarin gas in the city of Matsumoto. The effects were shocking, though not exactly what Asahara had intended. Unfortunately, when they released the gas, the wind changed and blew it through the neighborhood towards several apartment complexes and houses. Seven innocent people were killed that night, and around 200 were injured just from breathing it in. An eighth person died years later from injuries sustained on June 27th. Meanwhile, three of the judges experienced mild symptoms of sarin poisoning, but all of them survived. The news terrified people all over the country. Some believed it might have been an accident, but police honed in on a local man who happened to own a variety of chemicals. He lived next to the parking lot where the Ohm members staged their attack and he, his wife, and two of their children had been hurt by the gas. The man swore he only used the chemicals to develop photos and make pottery, but the authorities were suspicious. The media viciously attacked this innocent man, and he was treated as the prime suspect, even while he and his family were recovering from the poisoning in the hospital. While he was ultimately cleared of responsibility and the police issued an apology, his time in the spotlight served as a useful distraction for Ohm. Despite Ohm's failure to kill their true targets, it's possible that Asahara was pleased with the test on Matsumoto. Death was a mercy for non-believers. It freed them from an evil world and stopped them from accruing bad karma. It was a twisted and disturbing theology that disguised itself as a noble cause, and that's exactly how Asahara justified his violent vision. He told his followers that other living beings aside from humans, like animals and insects, shouldn't be harmed unnecessarily. Perhaps this is because, unlike humans, they didn't make choices which accrued bad karma. 
Those few OM members who knew about the poisoning lapsed into a strange doublethink, in which the mass murder of random people was seen as acceptable, yet at the same time, killing a bug was cruel and evil. It was clear Asahara didn't plan on stopping his rampage anytime soon. Just a few months after attempting to murder the judges, Asahara ordered another attack. In September, members of OM targeted journalist Shoko Igawa, who had correctly accused the group of being involved in the kidnapping and killing of lawyer Tsutsumi Sakamoto, along with his family. This time, his followers injected poison phosgene gas through Igawa's mail slot. Phosgene was the most deadly chemical weapon used in World War I, and is often colorless, just like sarin. Unlike sarin, however, it has an odor. Igawa smelled the toxic vapor and realized she'd been poisoned when she started coughing and having difficulty breathing. Luckily, Igawa escaped with her life. But she knew she was still in danger. She urged law enforcement to look into Om Shinrikyo and identify the poison gas to build a case. According to a later interview with Igawa, police did nothing in response. But the rest of Japan was finally starting to take notice of Ohm. Stories suggesting Ohm's involvement in the recent chemical attacks began appearing on major news outlets. Suddenly, the cult wasn't such a laughingstock anymore. Regular people started viewing them as an object of fear. By the beginning of 1995, Asahara got wind that the police finally planned to investigate the cult. The higher-ups in Ohm were told to hide and destroy their chemicals, biological agents, and research materials. Other materials were hidden on the compound. Asahara knew the police couldn't arrest him simply for producing sarin, because there was no law against manufacturing the gas. But in March of 1995, authorities had found other evidence linking Ohm to serious crimes. That was definitely not what he wanted. But instead of trying to fly under the radar, the 40-year-old took the opposite tact. So far, he had blatantly targeted his critics with impunity. If that time was coming to an end, then Ohm Shinrikyo would strike before the police had a chance to stop them. And this time, all of Tokyo would be in Ohm's crosshairs. Coming up, Ohm poisons thousands in Tokyo. Now back to the story. On March 20, 1995, the cult Ohm Shinrikyo launched a full-scale terrorist attack in the city of Tokyo. On the orders of their leader, 40-year-old Shoko Asahara, five of his closest devotees infiltrated separate subway cars during the morning rush hour. Each of the five men wielded special umbrellas with pointed metal tips and carried sealed plastic bags filled with clear liquid. The plan was simple and callous. They wanted to hurry on the apocalypse. That meant that they would cause death, illness, and chaos. Asahara's followers believed that killing non-believers would be a form of salvation for their souls. The five men took their places in the cars and kept quiet. In the dense crowd, they appeared to be completely ordinary citizens, perhaps on their morning commute like everyone else. Around them were business professionals, mothers, fathers, and grandparents. All of them were in mortal danger. Just before 8 a.m., which is when all five trains would arrive at the Kasumi Kaseki Station, at the center of Tokyo, 
The OM members used their umbrellas to poke holes in the plastic bags just before the car doors closed. Then they fled the subway as soon as possible. In a matter of moments, the chemical weapon inside the bags, an impure version of liquid sarin, started evaporating. It didn't take long after that for commuters to start feeling the effects. Some had runny noses first, others started coughing. Then people started collapsing. By that point, still only minutes after 8 o'clock, the reality of the situation had started to sink in. Public transport staff tried to respond to an emergency they had no training for. Because the previous sarin attacks had made the news before, some may have realized exactly what was happening. But there was no way to do anything about it other than to flee above ground. Given that people only had minutes to escape with their lives, that wasn't a realistic option for everyone. Subway employees felt bound to maintain order. They couldn't simply run away. They had to help evacuate people. A staff member found one of the plastic bags and attempted to clean up some of the spilled liquid to protect his fellow citizens. Direct exposure to the chemical ended up killing him. And he wasn't the only one. Chaos reigned as thousands flooded out of multiple trains and up to the surface. Some struggled to carry out the victims who had already fainted. Paramedics clambered to respond, performing CPR right outside the tunnels and rushing as many to the hospital as they could. Scattered reports and incomplete information slowed the emergency response. It took 45 minutes for the National Police Agency to realize they had a disaster on their hands. Trains continued to run until nearly 9.30, spreading sarin far and wide through the tunnels. In the end, over 5,000 people were injured and 13 were killed. Of the wounded, some were left permanently disabled. In a survey of victims from between the years 2000 and 2009, a majority reported significant vision issues. Others suffered from numbness in limbs, dizziness, and post-traumatic stress. The response from the Japanese public was immediate and forceful. They wanted the culprits punished to the fullest extent of the law. For many, this meant the death penalty. But first, the perpetrators had to be identified. The authorities leapt into action and fingers were instantly pointing in Asahara's direction. The investigative team looking into the previous Matsumoto sarin attack had recently uncovered large purchases of toxic chemicals linked to Ohm. It didn't take them long to put it together. A mere two days after the subway attack, authorities raided the compound near Mount Fuji. The events stunned most of the rank-and-file members of Om Shinrikyo. They had never heard their leader advocate violence. As far as they knew, he was a figure of peace, a compassionate yoga master. Though he often condemned the outside world as morally corrupt, he'd only ever spoken about saving people from their bad karma. But to Asahara and his closest indoctrinated aides, there was no difference between the two. Anything was justified as long as it came from his enlightened lips. He was to be the savior of the world. His teachings were equivalent to the will of God. His word was law. But Asahara's time in power had come to an end. Authorities began arresting Ohm members who had been involved in the crime and apprehended most of them in a matter of weeks. But it took a little longer to catch the mastermind. Asahara himself took refuge in one of the buildings on his massive compound near Mount Fuji. He holed up in a hidden room located between the second and third floors with plenty of food. 
In mid-May, nearly two months after the attack, he was finally found and taken into custody. By that point, police had gathered testimony from many in the group who were directly involved with producing chemical weapons. The scale of the operation was truly shocking. Authorities discovered tons of chemicals in dozens of barrels on the compound. Some were crucial to the production of sarin, while others were potentially used in a variety of other chemical weapons and poisons. On top of that, authorities also uncovered $7 million in cash, along with 22 pounds of solid gold. The revelations sent the nation into a frenzy. At first, Asahara played innocent, but it wasn't convincing. Things were no longer going according to his plans. The situation grew even more complicated leading up to his trial. As the months wore on, Asahara appeared to lose touch with reality. He muttered to himself and rarely spoke to anyone else. His charismatic persona and beatific smile were nowhere to be seen. Taro Takimoto of the Japanese Society for Cult Prevention and Recovery is certain Asahara faked his insanity. In an interview with CNA Insider, he pointed out that the leader was the kind of man who could have pretended to be mad for years. The court ultimately agreed with this perspective and declared Asahara fit to stand trial. It seems that Asahara was only interested in protecting himself. In turn, his defense tried to claim that the attacks were initiated by a radical minority within Ohm and that Asahara wasn't involved at all. But the truth was, Asahara had been growing more violent, egocentric, and outrageous for years. He went from selling fake health tonics to being worshipped as a literal god. He only had to say the word and otherwise ordinary people would step up to smite his enemies, not to mention everyone else caught in the crossfire. And there was intense public pressure to convict Asahara. The public at large, especially the families of the victims, hated the idea that the cult leader might be allowed to escape punishment. While the public and the media blamed Asahara and his followers for the attacks, they also began pointing fingers at law enforcement. Many blamed the authorities for failing to step in and stop Ohm sooner. When Tsutsumi Sakamoto's body was found in September of 1995, attention was on Ohm yet again. Using information from arrested cult members, the police were finally able to learn what had happened to the lawyer and his family. Asahara's trial went on for eight years. Finally, in 2004, he was convicted for his role in the subway attack and sentenced to death. His devotees who were involved in the subway attacks were also pursued by the courts. And in the end, 13 members of Ohm received death sentences. After years in prison, Asahara quit speaking entirely and refused to have visitors. It's possible he really did have a mental breakdown towards the end. On July 6, 2018, 63-year-old Shoko Asahara and six of his followers were executed by hanging. Their demise closed a tragic chapter in modern Japanese history, but Asahara's legacy and the group he founded continues to cling to life. After the fallout, some members of Om Shinrikyo stayed with the group and laid low. Around the time of Asahara's trial, the cult took on the name Aleph and attempted to distance itself from the Sarin attacks. Since then, Aleph and another spin-off sect, Hikari no Wa, have continued to operate. 
As of 2018, it was estimated that about 1,500 members still belong to the two organizations. Despite the fact that both groups have been under government surveillance by the Public Security Intelligence Agency, the numbers could potentially be even higher today. A minority of young people in Japan have expressed some admiration for Asahara in recent years. It seems that while they don't typically condone the murders, they sympathize with the frustration Om Shinrikyo members felt with modern society. Though decades have passed since Om was an active group, their beliefs about consumerism, materialism, and other moral ills still appeal to those who feel left behind by modern society. The promises of inner peace and higher truth can be tempting, but as we've seen in these three episodes, sometimes those promises are too good to be true. So if someone offers you enlightenment, be wary of what they're asking for in return. Thanks again for tuning into Yoga Cults, Gurus and Guides, presented by Cults. For more information on Shoko Asahara and Om Shinrikyo, amongst the many sources we used, we found the CNA Insider documentary, Tokyo's Fateful Sarin Gas Attack in 1995, and the New York Times article, A Guru's Journey, by Nicholas D. Kristoff with Cheryl Wudun, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.